We have a lot of famous people in our world, a lot of people that have done amazing things. And if you look at each one of them, there's usually some person behind them, someone who didn't get very much glory, some very inconspicuous person that maybe gave them the idea for the product that they produced, uh, maybe even encouraged them along the way. And today we're going to look at a story that happened back in the first century. You may know of the Apostle Paul. He's very famous. He was formerly called Saul, and he wrote about half of the New Testament. But you may not be familiar with the one whom the Holy Spirit empowered to come into Saul's life and influence him for Christ. And that man's name was Ananias. Now, you have heard the name before. A few weeks ago, Ananias and Sapphira, different people altogether, that Ananias is no longer in this world at that time. So this is a pivotal time in the life of Saul of Tarsus when Ananias visited him, led him to the Lord, and baptized him. And in Acts chapter 9 is where we read this story, but in Acts chapter 22, we also see a repeat of the story. And it provides us only the mention of this obscure individual. But he doesn't appear anywhere else throughout all of Scripture. Yet Ananias' visit and his obedience to the leading of the Holy Spirit impacted a new convert who in turn has influenced millions, even billions of lives with his writings. So here's the background. Saul is the leader of the Jewish faith. He is a powerful leader. He's well-respected and doing everything he can to oppose the spread of Christianity. He mocks the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He sees Christians as a threat to the Jewish way of life. And Saul has personally taken it upon himself to basically go out there and grab these Christians, throw them in prison in hopes that they will in time be executed, thus snuffing out this radical cultic religion that is spreading like wildfire. Now, two weeks ago, James, our associate pastor, in his message, mentioned the first time that we see Saul's name. And that was back in chapter 7. And he was there basically giving authority to the stoning of Stephen, uh, one of the early Christians. And all the people that were throwing these stones came and threw their outer coats at the feet of Saul. And Acts chapter 8, verse 1, look what it says. This is very chilling. Saul approved the stoning of Stephen. So you can just imagine how the news of all of this spread throughout the Christian community. Like his name would be known in a hurry. And the Bible says that the Christians started to scatter when they heard all of this. Now, in my life group that I'm leading... This past week, we got to the point where Jesus was arrested, and he was then taken to the cross. And the scriptures tell us that all of his apostles, they they scattered out of fear that this would happen to them. And that's what took place here. The Christians started to scatter. And the Bible tells us that Saul was like a methodical madman. He was just going from house to house to house. He was basically flushing out the Christians and dragging them off to prison. 
And this isn't Saul just saying, you know, I disagree with what you teach about this Old Testament passage of Scripture. I think we should have a debate, and we'll get some people there to sit and witness that debate and see whose opinion is correct on that. But that's not this at all. Saul's ultimate goal wasn't simply prison for these Jesus followers. It was death. And like an Adolf Hitler, he wanted to stamp Christianity out altogether. He wanted to exterminate a whole segment of society. So we pick up in chapter 9, verse 1. In Jerusalem, Saul was still threatening the followers of the Lord by saying he would kill them. So he went to the high priest and asked him to write letters to the synagogues in the city of Damascus. Then if Saul found any followers of Christ's way, men or women, he would arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem. So just put yourself in Saul's sandals for a few moments. You see Christianity as a direct attack against your religion, against your Jewish faith. So you've got to set out and prove that this man who was crucified is not the Messiah and that he is dead, he is buried, and that's the end. Like there's no resurrection here. Just get over this. But just to make certain that Jesus' bizarre beliefs died with him, you're going to intimidate those fanatics into either changing their minds and, or dying, and the choice is theirs. So you're a man on a mission until that day when you're traveling to Damascus and this incredible light blinds you. And then you hear this voice and says, Saul, Saul, like why do you persecute me? And you immediately recognize who that is. But you still say, who are you, Lord? And a voice responds, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then Saul got up and Jesus told him to go into the city and wait there for details. And those who were with you, they heard a sound, and they didn't know where it was coming from. They couldn't see anything at all. But you knew who it was. You had heard the voice of the risen Lord, and you would never be the same again. So look at verses 8 and 9. Saul got up from the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he could not see a thing. Someone then led him by the hand to Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink. Now you understand the setting. So now let's begin with some of the obstacles to actually influencing others. So in verse 10, a follower named Ananias lived in Damascus, and the Lord spoke to him in a vision. Ananias answered, Lord, here I am. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. When you get there, you will find a man named Saul from the city of Tarsus. Saul is praying, and he has seen a vision. He saw a man named Ananias coming to him and putting his hands on him so that he could see again. Now, I don't think Ananias actually hears that last statement because in verse 13, Ananias replied, Lord, 
A lot of people have told me about the terrible things this man has done to your followers in Jerusalem. And now the chief priests have given him the power to come here and arrest anyone who worships in your name. Satan wants us to be full of fear. And, and he's working in Ananias' life. And Ananias says, you know, Lord, I'm just not feeling led to go and talk to this man. And this is like the Lord sending you to go and share the gospel with some murderous dictator. That's exactly what it would be like. And Ananias is saying, well, Lord, you don't know this guy. Let me just fill you in a little bit about him. And we just think, you know, how crazy is that? How, how comical is that? Ananias is saying that you don't know him. Now, the Lord has been around longer than Ananias. And when Ananias says, Lord, I'm not sure you really understand how dangerous Saul is. Like the Lord, in essence, replies, I know Saul of Tarsus like the back of my hand. I created him. But God wasn't that diplomatic. He, this is what he said in verse 15. The Lord said to Ananias, Go, I have chosen him to tell the kings, the, excuse me, the, tell foreigners, kings, and the people of Israel about me. I will show him how much he must suffer for worshiping in my name. So that go, it's a one-word directive. And he, it's the same as what he gave to Philip when he told him to go and talk to the Ethiopian eunuch. But he doesn't just say that Ananias, he doesn't just say what Ananias is to do. He actually goes on and explains the why. Because I have chosen him to tell foreigners, kings, and the people of Israel about me. Like this man, Saul, is going to advance the gospel, and he is going to do it in an amazing way. And while God speaks to Ananias, Satan is whispering to Ananias. He's whispering in his ear. He says, don't waste your breath with this guy. Like, he doesn't deserve Jesus. Like Keep Jesus all to yourself. And that's what Satan wants you to do as well. He wants you to just kind of coast through this Christian life, never actually speaking about your faith, never sharing it with anyone else. A number of years ago, researchers put a northern pike in a large aquarium that held several thousand gallons of water. And then they put its favorite food in there, minnows. And it was an amazing environment for that pike. But then one day, they put a sheet of plexiglass down the middle of that tank. And they put the pike on one side, the minnows on the other. So every time that fish would see those minnows, he would butt up against the plexiglass and not be able to get through. Then later on, he tried again. And after he had butted his snout up against that plexiglass over and over again, he finally gave up. And then the researchers, they removed the plexiglass in between the two sides of that tank. And now the minnows were swimming in around the northern pike. But you know what happened to that fish? They actually starved to death. Like these uh, 
minnows. They were bumping off his snout. They were swimming and bumping him on the belly. And he just paid no attention to them at all because he had been conditioned to think that they were no longer available to him, that they weren't to be touched. And there are a lot of things we get conditioned to believe. It could be behaviors. It could be attitudes. It might be actions. But somewhere along the line, we see and sense the barriers, fear, doubt. Maybe it's pride. It might be insecurity. But we need to understand that the Holy Spirit has removed that plexiglass. There's nothing between us and the pre-Christians in this world. There's nothing there to prevent us from going to them. We don't need to be starving ourselves by living in the flesh. We need to be focusing on thriving by relying on the Spirit. But we make excuses. We'll say, well, I'm too young, or I'm too awkward, or I can't relate to kids anymore, or my boss would fire me if I actually spoke to him about spiritual matters. So we're like that northern pike. We swim in circles, and we can go through this life in oblivion to the fact that those around us need a Savior. But remember the words of the Apostle Paul when three decades later he wrote this in 2 Timothy 1. God's Spirit doesn't make cowards out of us. The Spirit gives us power, love, and self-control. So now we're going to spend some time trying to determine the characteristics that the Holy Spirit uses to influence others. The Holy Spirit could use Ananias because he had some essential traits. And first of all, credibility. Acts 22 tells us that Ananias was a follower of Jesus. He was also a devout follower of the law. And even though he was a Christian, the Bible tells us that he was respected by the Jewish people. He was a consistent follower of Christ. And when he's invited to have a face-to-face meeting with this man called Saul, this dangerous enemy, he voices his concerns, but then he follows the Spirit's leading. So that's why the Lord chooses to use him. He has a tendency to kind of call upon those who are listening to his voice. So live a life that communicates credibility, and your witness and your example will actually earn you the right to influence others. Now, obedience was something else that he had. Ananias went to the house, and as he knocked on that door, he must have been petrified as he was expecting to find this murderous man behind that door. But instead of finding that type of man, he finds a broken man. He finds a, a, a blind man and a repentant man. And listen to Paul's personal testimony of what happened as he tells about it later in chapter 22. He came to me and said, Saul, my friend, you can now see again. At once I could see. Then Ananias told me, the God that our ancestors worshipped has chosen you to know what he wants done. He has chosen you to see the one who obeys God and to hear his voice you must tell everyone what you have seen and heard. So the Holy Spirit can inspire 
a man like Ananias to have a face-to-face meeting with a murderous man like this. So what could he empower you to do? Like parents, maybe he could enable you to begin to see your children as blessings from God instead of interruptions in your life. Employees, you could be empowered by the Holy Spirit to set an example in obedience and your worth, your ethic at work. Students, you could take a stand and choose to be distinctive. Your attitude and your ability is going to influence others. Then in verse 18, suddenly something like fish scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see. He got up and was baptized. Then he ate and felt much better. For several days, Saul stayed with the Lord's followers in Damascus. So another part of making ourselves available to the Holy Spirit is to actually be thorough. Sometimes we leave things out of the presentation. We'll talk about involvement in the church, but we neglect to talk about the fact that we're supposed to cultivate a personal relationship with Christ. We'll speak about doing good things and then neglect to talk about the grace of God, which covers over the bad things that we do. And sometimes people will stop short when it comes to baptism. And if we're trying to restore the New Testament church and we look at the book of Acts, we look at the conversions that took place there, we see that in every conversion, baptism by immersion was a natural step when one chose to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It wasn't an add-on that they got around to sometime later. It was something that they did right then. Because notice what happens after Ananias heals Saul. He doesn't say, look, it's been three days since you ate. Let's go get some lunch together. He says, you should be baptized. Like, what are you waiting for? So Acts 22, verse 16. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. So we see a pattern developing among those who committed themselves to Christ. In Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people were baptized into Christ. In Acts chapter 8, Philip preached to the Ethiopian eunuch. And as they were coming along close to a source of water, he said, why can't I be baptized right now? And Philip said, there's nothing holding you back as long as you believe that Jesus is the Christ. And he was baptized right then and there. So Ananias prays with Saul. And then the first words out of his mouth are, and now what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. And why is that? It's because baptism is a humbling act. It is a demonstration of our devotion to Christ. And it's something we've chosen to do as part of our spiritual cleansing. So be credible, be obedient, and be thorough. Like some of you are hesitating on that decision to be baptized, and in some ways, you're a bit like Saul, and we need to say, like, what are you waiting for? You believe, you've accepted Christ. Like, now, be baptized into him. Now, there are four observations of this account of Ananias going to Saul, who became Paul. And one of them is that God is always working in people's lives. 
He's working to unfold his plan according to his will and according to his timetable and not yours. So God prepares the way, working people upstream against the flow. A man who hadn't gone to church since he was a kid was invited by a friend to come to our church. He didn't actually know why he said yes, but he and his wife and his children were making plans to attend. And they were thinking, like this, this is going to be just horrible, but we'll, we'll do it. But as they walked through the doors, someone very warmly greeted them and said, why don't you go over to our welcome center? And when they were there, uh, someone said, you're two-year-old, you're six-year-old, they can go downstairs to be a part of our Glow Kids program. And when they came back upstairs and came into the worship center, the music was contemporary, it was upbeat, and they started to think, you know, hey, this is okay. And and then the clincher was when the pastor got up to speak. (laughs) Not just because the pastor got up to speak, but the topic was something that they had been actually struggling with that day. And they thought, you know, this was chosen just for us. And then after the service, someone invited them out into the cafe for a coffee. Realize that God is always working in people's lives. And God was working in Saul's life to get him to be ready as he walked along that road. And then he was working in Ananias' life to get him ready to go to Saul. Which leads to the second observation. God will use you if you're willing. So even if you're hesitant, even if you're fearful, even if all of that is taking place in your life, learn a lesson from Ananias. Because when you're afraid, that's when God can actually do the most with you. Because you actually depend upon him and you don't depend upon yourself. So when you're nervous about asking your unbelieving spouse if you can pray together, he's there with you. When you stutter a little bit, when you start to talk to a co-worker about the church that means so much to you, or when you put up your hand to host a life group for the first time and maybe even lead that group, and that time is approaching. In other words, when you feel that you are at your worst, that's when God is going to be at his best. If you are willing God will use you. And then the potential and the possibilities for impact are far more than we even expect. We can make an eternal difference in the lives of others as God works through us in our serving and our loving and our living and in our giving. The Philippians 1.6, God is the one who began this good work in you. And I am certain that he won't stop before it is complete on the day that Christ Jesus returns. So another scripture says that God is able to do even more than we could ask or, or, or even imagine. So he may use you to influence the person that is least likely to actually come to the Lord. God sees that person. He sees what that person can become. And rather than limiting them by what they've always been, Howard Hendricks said, I have never met anyone who planned on having a mediocre life, but I have met plenty of mediocre people. So decide that you want to serve God 
and that you want to serve him with excellence, and that you won't settle for being a half-hearted Christian with a, a lukewarm commitment and passion. Our God specializes in doing what is impossible. And here he takes a militant opponent of the faith and transforms him into an amazing defender of the faith. And he uses an unknown Christian as that vessel, as the one that influences him. And he still does that today. It's amazing what can happen when just one person allows the influence of the Holy Spirit to work in his life so that he or she can influence others. So we need to be ready when God says go. An airplane crashed into a river just shortly after takeoff, and it was in the middle of a snowstorm. And there was a bit of a rescue operation going on, but there were two women in that frigid water. One of them had been rescued by a helicopter, but the other woman's hands were so cold that she couldn't hold on to that life ring. And she found her way onto a little ice floe, And then she was pathetically trying to paddle her way into the shore, and it was obvious that she wasn't going to make it. And there were a lot of people standing there along the shoreline, a lot of rescue people as well, and nobody was moving to do anything. So finally, this 28-year-old man, he was just a government worker, and he jumped into the water He swam to her. He had to dodge ice flows and debris from the aircraft. And and he was able to rescue her and bring her back to shore. And later on, he said, I felt so helpless. She was screaming. She was saying, would somebody please save me? And nobody was moving. And then it looked as if she passed out there on that ice flow. And he said, "I, I just pulled off my boots and my coat, and I jumped in the water to save her. And then later on, he said, when the girl needed saving, God looked around, and he said, eeny, meeny, miny, and you're mo. And so I jumped in. So some of you might not be familiar with that. That's a saying we used to use as kids, trying to pick who would go first. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo, catch a tiger by the toe. If he hollers, let him go, out goes Y-O-U. And that's the mo in all of this. So Satan, what he likes to do is remind you of past failures. So he would say, just stand there on the shore like you tried that before and things didn't go so well because you can't swim or or that person fought back and was pushing you under the water. And then, you know, the water's too cold or the task is too difficult. And we frequently sense God wanting us to do things, and we come up with all kinds of excuses. There are others who could do it. But then God just kind of taps us on the shoulder, and he says, "Uh, you're Mo, and you have to be ready to jump in. The passage concludes by saying after Saul's baptism that he wasted no time in going and influencing others. And people were astonished at that transformation. The Jews had formerly seen Paul, excuse me, Saul, he's still Saul, as this enforcer, intimidator. But once he came to Christ, all of a sudden they now wanted to kill him. They knew that they couldn't contradict his testimony. And it's no wonder that God sent 
Ananias to him because that ripple effect began and then more and more people came to know Christ. A number of years ago, I shared this uh, conversion story with you. But on April 21st, 1855, Edward Kemble, he was just a shy Sunday school teacher, but he got up the nerve to share the gospel with a teenage shoe salesman by the name of Dwight L. Moody. And Dwight L. Moody, he went on to lead tens of thousands to Christ. And even though he was poorly educated, Moody, on one of his trips to England, influenced a well-educated and cultured theologian by the name of Frederick Meyer. And and he actually influenced him to change his preaching style and emphasis. And then later, Meyer went to the United States on an evangelistic tour, and on one occasion, he encouraged a discouraged preacher by the name of Wilbur Chapman. And Meyer's preaching convinced him to become an evangelist and begin doing revivals. And as Chapman's ministry grew, it was getting to the point where he needed an assistant. So he actually hired a former professional baseball player who just had a high school education, and his name was Billy Sunday. And then Billy Sunday went on to lead over a million people to Christ. And then in 1924 in Charlotte, North Carolina, Sunday preached at a revival, and a prayer group was formed. And that group prayed regularly and specifically for someone younger to come along and lead a spiritual revival throughout North America. And a man by the name of Mordecai Ham responded. And then he later took ministry training and became an evangelist. And some years later, he, after he had preached a sermon, an invitation was given, and a 16-year-old farm boy who was actually in the choir that day responded, and was converted, and his name was Billy Graham, and he has touched millions. But the chain of conversion didn't actually begin on April 21st, 1855. It began much earlier than that. It began on a Friday in 29 AD when the Son of God chose to influence others by becoming a perfect sacrifice on the cross. And maybe today is the day for you to make a decision. Maybe you need to hear the words of Ananias and you need to respond to them. You need to believe in Christ. And then Ananias is saying, now, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized.